Welcome TTB community, I am Bob Demena, and here with me as always is the very authoritative Elliot Shibley. Ooh, authoritative. Now yeah, why did I, you pick that one? Uh, because I look to you as a good leader. I, I think you're a good leader. I think you provide good insight and have a good, uh, I don't know, good, good foresight on whatever it is you're doing. And I would follow you into battle, essentially. Thank you for that, Bob. Yes. Thank you. So our guest today is Nick Hines. And Nick is a freelance reporter. He's done work for Matador. He's done work for Wine Enthusiast. And we are going to be talking about his article where he developed the Great American Wine Trip, which is a cross-country road trip that stops at 15 different wineries throughout the U.S., and it is very COVID relevant and something you could do that is travel related right now during a global pandemic. So not only do we talk about the wineries, but we also talk about Nick's experience reporting on coffee around the world. So two of my favorite drinks in the world, maybe I'll add water in there as well, because I really do enjoy a good glass of water. But this is an, a, another topic near and dear to my heart that I'm very excited we got to have. And it was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it was. Before we get into the conversation, very briefly, I just want to run through what we have going on behind the scenes. If you are interested in traveling, which I hope you are by listening to this podcast, <laughs> and want a little bit of help in planning your trips, you can do a few things with us. You can purchase right now uh, video tutorials that were created by Elliot and myself, where we break down mul the multiple aspects of travel planning, everything from booking cheap airfare to understanding the navigation of a city to getting insight on social norms and cultural, I'm sorry, yeah, cultural norms and safety concerns of your destination. And it's broken down into this five part, 10 to 15 minute video series that you can now get through our website. And in addition to that, you can book, you can, we can help you book airfare for cheaper, offering the opportunity to save you $200 on a ticket. You can reach out to us and we can directly help you plan your trip one-on-one -on -one via Zoom. You can give us the details. We will talk you through your trip planning and really make it extremely easy for you to do on your own or We'll write the whole thing for you. If you want to just kick back and let us do the work, we will absolutely do the legwork. We, it's, it's what we do. We love it. We enjoy researching cities. And so we, we would be happy to accommodate you in that way. <clears throat> in addition to that, outside of the consulting services we offer, if you want to join the podcast and come on an episode with us, you can do that now as part of the Travel Roundtable series. If you are a travel influencer, if you have information related to travel that you want to share with us, Submit your name, your email, and a bit of information about yourself to the portal on our Travel Around Table tab on our website, and we'll get you on the list to become a to become a panel member very soon. If you're in Philly and you're looking for a tour guide, Keshler Tybert is on our website. You can book tours directly through our website with him. He's a great guy. He's been on our podcast a bunch of times now. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, and and then lastly, uh, the the easiest way to to support our podcast is simply by clicking follow or like or download or engage in any way with any of the content we put out there. It really goes a far, a, a really far way in helping support this show. And we are incredibly appreciative of those who decide to do that. And uh, I think that's it. So without further introduction, please give it up for our next guest, Nick Hines. Thank <laughs> you. 
Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Nick, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, so I want to give our listeners a brief background. We actually connected after we submitted a response to a request you had as you were writing an article uh, for Matador Network on how to plan for 2020, 2021 travel in the age of COVID, according to 23 travel agents. And so thank you for the feature. First of all, thank you for taking our advice and putting it into your article. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I loved your guys' input. You know, it's a it's a tricky topic to navigate right now. And so, I mean, the best thing that we could do is listen to the experts on everything. Yeah, yeah, we really appreciate it. So after that, uh, we reached out to you and now here we are. And I, I want you to actually put into context who you are. Uh, but really, it was the wine, the coffee. That's what we're kind of going to get into today on U.S. travel, I think, for the most part. But so, yeah, why don't you give us some context? Uh, what do you do? So I am a writer and an editor. Um, one of my gigs is I'm the food and drink editor with Matador Network, um, which used to take me a lot of places when we could travel. And um, before that, I was writing about wine, beer, and spirits for a variety of places. Um, I was over at a site called Vine Pair, and I was also at a place called Supercall, which was uh, a spirits website by Thrillist. And I've still been writing a little bit more about wine and beer and spirits with Matador, but also with uh, publications like Food and Wine and Wine Enthusiast um, and 750 Daily and a couple others and staying busy. All right. Nice, man. Yeah, I, I cannot tell you how excited I am. Uh, my wife and I are unbelievably thrilled to, well, I shouldn't say thrilled. We're not thrilled about coronavirus, but we have had the opportunity to enjoy some wine during the lockdowns and during the quarantining but i'm really excited to talk to you about your wine winery uh map that you've kind of put together for the entire united states which i think is really important right now and in the future when travel is still a little restricted and i'm really excited to talk to you about coffee yeah <laughs> yeah two of my favorite things absolutely yeah so how do you want to get started? Should we dive into the roadmap? Absolutely. And then break it down that way? Okay. So why don't you give us a background on this roadmap? So this came about because we were thinking, you know, we're, if anyone's going to travel, we need to travel domestically. And if one of the reasons is a lot of places won't let us in, but other than that, it's just a little bit safer. Um, and on the safety front, road trips are really the easiest way to go. Um, and that got me thinking about all these wine regions that I've been to when travel was easier and when I was able to travel. And the fact that there are wineries all across the United States just really strikes me as important and something that doesn't get enough attention, but also how good these wineries are. Um, you know, everyone knows the wineries in California and they get credit for good reason. They're very delicious. I grew up in California and a little small wine town and that's, you know, it's hard to beat some of those wines, but all across the country, there's good wine being made, which is kind of what made me think, you know, what if we did a road trip around the country and just did all domestic wines, take some people to places that they might not expect, like Idaho, and Virginia, um, Palisade region of Colorado as well. Pretty much everywhere you go, you can find good wine. It's really exciting to hear because for the longest time, I thought the only wineries in the United States were really 
the Finger Lakes region and the California and the Napa wine and Sonoma wine valleys. And uh, don't forget Oregon and the Columbia Valley. Yeah. And and Willamette. All right. So there are a few. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I find this really interesting because people always are looking for an excuse to travel to the United States. Like the United States road trip is iconic in a lot of ways. People have done it for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, Route 66. Right. To visit different cities or visit different national parks. There's a laundry list of different reasons to travel the United States. And this is one more, but this one appeals to a lot of people. You know, not everybody wants to go hiking, enjoys the outdoors. Not everybody wants to go into the cities all the time, but this one, who doesn't, enjoy you know drinking around the country and so <laughs> i i i thought have you done this yourself yet so i've been to almost all the places i kind of put my head together with some other writers to make sure that i could cover all parts of the country that i hadn't been to yet but most of these places i've been to separate times not all at once in one okay. big road trip um but what's interesting is um when I was in Idaho wine region, one of the things that they said that it, what that made that wine region pop up a little bit more is because they're on the way, if you're going from the East coast, they're on the way to the wineries in Washington and Oregon. And so it was kind of like, it did have this road trip connection inherently just because of where they are. And uh, the wineries that are there kind of reflect that because they're on the main roads right through and makes it so easy to just pop in and add one more day to your trip, you know? Yeah. So how many stops are actually on this trip that you mapped out? I think we got it all the way up to around 15. Okay. It was, let me And I know in, in your article, you list that there are 870 wineries, sorry, 8,700 wineries in the U.S. and counting, and 250 recognized wine regions. Yeah, that it really just exemplifies how, how many options are out there. And each place is a little bit different, obviously, with different grapes, depending on the region, and also different styles. Uh, we're having a lot of European winemakers come to smaller regions, and they're able to make a name for themselves because they don't have this high price burden in somewhere yeah. like Virginia that they might have in France or even parts of New Zealand. I remember, are, are you familiar with the Psalm Netflix documentaries? Yes. So my wife and I love them. Um, Her and her, one of her best friends have watched them probably six or seven times, all of them, not just the first one. And the, I think the third one really documents the, the transition from California and the United States being new world and inferior to old world, like French wines. And it really shows how the United States has really stepped up their game in the winemaking world. And I think that is starting to spread from west to east now, kind of moving from California into the other areas like Denver and even Louisiana, it looks like, and Pennsylvania and New York. I think that um, it was really interesting to me when I moved to Denver in last July, I wasn't familiar with the wineries here. Uh, It was something that I had heard about, but it was more the Palisade region is is really known for its peaches. And that's something that I knew coming here, but I didn't quite realize that they had so many wineries, relatively speaking. It's still a pretty small region, but I started tasting through them and speaking with them. And, you know, there's a lot of good wine to be found here. And that really surprised me. Um, but there's also a lot of bad wine, you know, you have to sort through. But 
it came about, I was talking to them about the fires, sadly, but they were talking to me about, you know, that one route out of Denver towards the Palisade region really brings a lot of people road tripping through and brings a lot of people to try Colorado wine and get excited about something new. Yeah, the when we were there, when my wife and I were there in May of 2019, we did a few wineries that were in the, I guess, tasting rooms that were in the city. Uh, one of them ended up being Balistrary Vineyards, and we enjoyed a lot of their wines. They had an open tasting room. Um, I don't think we ended up buying anything because we were flying out the next day with only carry-ons, but it, it was very surprising how good a lot of their wines are. And one of the questions I wanted to ask is based on the, I guess, northern, southern, eastern, western, do you find that certain regions produce better red wines or better white wines? I think the biggest factor is more how far along the region is in its winemaking history. Because um, a lot of early regions will be they'll be mimicking what was popular in Napa and, you know, like big heavy oaked red wines or really heavily oaked Chardonnays. But then, you know, they bring in new winemakers and they get more of this European style that's a little bit lighter, a little bit less oak influence. And they kind of just let the grapes speak for themselves, okay. which is harder to do um, because, you know, you have to find the right grape. There's a lot of experimentation that goes into it. But in terms of a red or white split, I wouldn't say necessarily there's a huge one by region, although the New York wineries make some really good white wine. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I am familiar with. Like the Finger Lakes area resembles the Mosul region in Germany, and they produce really great Rieslings. And Pennsylvania is not really known for its red wines, um, but it is a little bit better known for its white. And same thing with Virginia, but then when you go to the West Coast, like the Columbia and Willamette Valley, and then Sonoma and Napa, those tend to produce really great red wines, but also good white wines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also in Virginia, there's a very long history of American grapes there, um, and okay. American grape hybrids. And I was there, I guess it was two years ago now, maybe a year and a half time, time has been flying by, but they, uh, <laughs> they've been experimenting a lot with a lot of different grapes. It's almost like they don't have a signature grape in Virginia because there's so many different things that they're doing. And it's a lot of fun. You know, you can go to one place, um, I believe is Barbersville has a whole slew of Italian varieties and red Italian varieties that are very good and very European style. And then, you know, you can go a little bit north to early mountain and they have some amazing red wines and very light style as well but as far as you can get from like what you think of as you know classic american heavy oaked as you can get yeah. at early mountain but then there are some of those heavy oaked ones as well you know it's a little bit of everything can can we regionalize the united states maybe break it down into different sections and say you know for the the northeast this is the type of wine you can expect. These are the types of grapes that this region produces just to kind of break it down into different categories. Is that possible? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it might be possible for California and the Pacific Northwest is kind of the easiest place that you can do that. 
but with all these other places that are experimenting a lot and finding their own, um, it's a little bit harder to say this is what you'll expect there, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's, it, it can be frustrating because you, you want to be sure that you're getting what you like, but it's also exciting to see something new, you know? Um, yeah. That is one example. Cool. Yeah. One example of that I would say is Pacific Northwest has, you know, their great Pinot Noirs and, um, a lot of the wineries in Idaho could have emulated that and they could have got the grapes from Washington. They're right next to each other and Snake River Valley like butts up against the States and everything, but they're kind of finding their own way and experimenting. Um, There's a place called Split Rail down in Garden City, Idaho, and they're, they have an amphora, which is, you know, the big clay pots that are used in the country of Georgia for winemaking. And they're experimenting with beer and wine hybrids and have uh, a fooder, like a giant barrel. Um, and, you know, that's not something that I would expect in the middle of Idaho. No, so not at all. Kinda, <laughs> just kind of goes to show you that there's a little bit of something everywhere. In some of the wineries you visited, do you notice a lot of the wineries trying to use their own grown grapes? Or do you see them using a mix of grown grapes and grapes imported from either New Zealand, Australia, or uh, Europe? Not so much grapes brought from out of the country, but a lot will bring in grapes from uh, more known regions. Um, okay. A lot from California and a lot from Washington area as well. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of places that are trying their darndest to make grapes work in places that you wouldn't think grapes could grow, like high desert or, yeah, you know, humid south. Yep. And, and for those listening, if you've ever, if you've watched the second Psalm, which is my favorite, because it really talks about the growing of the grapes for the wine making. And it's really the soils that the soils and the climate that make the wine and no year is identical, which I think is the absolute coolest thing because wine really is fleeting in terms of what is good and what is bad because you can have a great year three years in a row and then have a series of 10 horrible years just because it rained too early or the frost came too late yeah and sadly also fires have been factored into that as well with you're losing some of these years um, some of these vintages in northern california now oregon as well colorado had was hit by there it's this was probably when I was speaking to some of the winemakers in Colorado, they were saying that this is the first time that fires have really impacted the grape growing there, um, just because it is kind of a newer region. And, you know, they're figuring it out, doing a lot of testing and everything. But sadly, that's come into the factor as well of what you were talking about with the soils and the weather patterns and everything. Yeah, but It Columbia, is very much time and a place. Yeah, Columbia Valley, when... Uh, my wife and I were in Portland in May of 2018, that they, the fires kind of had jumped into the Columbia Valley from like the Mount Hood region. And it was impacting a lot of the wine growers there. And we stopped at a few wineries outside the city and every single one of them seemed to be impacted by it. And it was just kind of sad to hear. Yeah, it's really hard to look at these places and be hopeful about that with you know, climate change is exasperating these problems and it's making it a lot worse and it's bringing different weather patterns to new places. And 
if people do go look at that map, you'll see that I made for Matador Network, you'll see that a lot of those roads will go through some of the places that were closed because of fires, you know, yeah. like whole roads shut off and transportation itself limited, which hurts the wineries because it, people can't go, but it also, you know, it hurts the wine culture a lot too, because these wine towns have such a good culture around them with food and it's a whole industry revolves oh, yeah. around it. Yep. Bob, you were up in the Finger Lakes region earlier this year, right? September. Yeah, we went in place of Italy. So we spent um, a week up in the Finger Lakes. It was the second time that I went with my wife. We love it there. It's it's a beautiful little getaway. Um, not too far from New Jersey. Highly recommend it. Most of the people who, who vacation in New Jersey go south and we've, we kind of feel lucky to go the opposite direction. But yeah, and I, I the, the setting there, everything is perfect. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how you compare it to places that you've been in Europe in terms of the wine. Uh, you know, I, I, I have to admit that I probably am <laughs> not the best. My wife is actually pro the, the motivating fact, like the reason we go to the, the Finger Lakes, but she seems to really like them. I, I know they're, they're better for their white wines and she is more of a, a, a cab drinker. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we need to go to Napa Valley eventually, but she loves them. We, we really enjoy it. Uh, compared to Europe, again, I mean, uh, we went to Croatia for our honeymoon and I think we only drank cab, you know, we were drinking. Yeah. Wine. But, uh, oh, what is it? Zinfandel comes from Croatia, correct? Uh, yeah, there's, it's, Zinfandel's a grape with a funny story where a lot of people claim it and a lot yes. of people have different <laughs> names for it. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's also one of my favorite grapes. Um, they grew a lot in California around where I'm from as well in uh, central California. And it's, it's a tricky history one because there's a lot of people who like to claim the grape, but yes. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So when I was in Croatia, we heard that this, the guy started it on some Island off of the coast, you know, somewhere on the Dalmatian coast. And he ended up coming to the United States and he brought Zeffendel to the United States. But of course, these are going to be Croatian winemakers who are telling the story. So it's funny Absolutely. that you said that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I haven't, I actually haven't been to the Finger Lakes since I've been of drinking age. Last time I was there, I think I was uh, maybe 10 with my parents. And the only thing I had while I was there is chestnut soup, which is why now I love roasted chestnuts and chestnut soup. But I'd love to go back and actually compare it to some of the, the Mosul region in Germany, specifically the Rieslings. And I am a fan of a really dry Riesling. And I have heard that some of the wineries in the Finger Lakes do amazingly dry Rieslings that are highly rated. Same thing with the Willamette Valley in Oregon. So I'd love to compare the two. And my wife, right before the lockdown started, we had a wine tasting and we were hoping to start doing them every month or so. And we were, had a grand plan to go through different regions of the world and the United States and compare different types of wines and specifically different grapes to see how each little region differed. I love the comparison that you go back to with the Finger Lakes and, and the Mosul region because it's something that is, is uh, you know, it's kind of easy to do to compare it to these European regions that have been growing grapes for far longer than the United States has been a mm -hmm. country. Um, and one day I hope, you know, people will be saying, 
oh, it's like the Finger Lakes region when yeah, they right, go somewhere else. Right. But uh, it's a lot of these regions are kind of hanging their hat on we're at the same parallel as this place in Europe or, you know, we make the same style of wines because we have the same latitude. And mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting to compare that to places that I've been in, in France and in, um, in Spain and Italy, they, they wouldn't be comparing themselves to American regions that way. No, not but at all. There is, there is, you know, there's a connection that there's similar areas and similar styles. Um, so it's kind of fun to look at it that way. One of my favorites is Loire Valley um, mm. in France is yeah. one of my favorite wine regions. And I was in, when I was in Snake River Valley in Idaho, they were saying, you know, we're, we're similar to Loire Valley. And then I've been other places in California that also say they're similar to Loire Valley. So everyone kind of has their own way of interpreting it, but it's fun to, to make your own comparisons as well. It is, it is. And it's an easy way for people that are familiar with the regions to say, oh, so it'll be, I can expect this kind of thing. Um, so a lot of our listeners are based in California, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. And we know a lot of, we know where a lot of the wineries are in California, but for Pennsylvania and New Jersey, do you have any specific wineries or recommendations in those areas? I know part of your map cuts through, I don't know if it cuts through Pennsylvania, but it looked like it cut through and had a stop in New Jersey. Let me double check. Um, so a lot of the Northeast was kind of put our heads together for that one with the Matador staff who lived up there a little bit longer. Um, but in Ohio, they have some surprisingly good winemaking as well. Um, trying to remember oh, in if Cincinnati. there was around Pennsylvania. Yeah, they have a similar growing style up there to what New York was doing with the cold weather grapes. You know, they need something hardy. There's a lot of um, hybrids with American styles that can kind of survive a humidity and then being hit with cold. Yeah. But in terms of Pennsylvania, I'm not too familiar with it. It's something that I'd love to learn more about, but well, next time you're out here, we'll hit up a few. Um, the Central PA, we've done a few wine tours throughout the day, and there are, it seems like more and more pop up almost every other year that we're not familiar with. But it's it's a lot of fun. Just go in, get some tastings, and then you know head home, have a have a DD, and then next yeah. time we rotate. Well, that's that's the entire uh, Finger Lakes experience. Nick, do you have anything to discuss on the Finger Lakes? Any uh, recommendations or preferences on how to experience it there? So the Finger Lakes is a really fun one. Um, they're making very like bright, clean wines. And I think one of the biggest things about experiencing it there is to just go do it. You know, it's like, it's a terrible travel advice if I was a trip planner or anything like that. So thank God that's not what I'm hanging my hat on. But, <laughs> you know, they, it's if you just go there and experience it, go door to door. Um, not now, obviously, wait till COVID's over, but you got to see it for yourself and talk to the winemakers. It's somewhere where you still can talk to winemakers, which is important. Um, you know, some of the bigger regions, even if you go out to parts of Long Island that are making great wine, but different style um, of tasting rooms. And in the Finger Lakes, you can still go in, talk to the winemakers get to know people and no one knows the grapes and the wines better than the people who grew it and made it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, we I, we actually went when it was September, so it was right in you know the heat of COVID, and mm-hmm. uh, they actually I was talking to a tour guide there, and he was saying that they actually they had a great year because so much international travel was canceled. Mm-hmm. He saw an influx of New Yorkers and people that just wanted to get away, get out of the city, and they had a great year. We we went, and it was just the standard mask on. You know, once you get seated, you have your wine, you experience your wine, and then you put your mask on and, you know, you leave or you sit outside, you sit there. It was, we were fortunate to have beautiful weather the entire time. So we spent a majority of it outside and and experiencing it that way. But yeah, the nice weather definitely helps when, you know, these tasting rooms, it's, it's hard when they're, wine tasting is such an intimate experience. It's face to face. It's, you know, you're talking a lot and you're sipping and swirling and sometimes spitting which is all things that aren't (laughs) great right now but uh, like you said like these places that are opening up their outdoors and they're adapting and they're figuring out ways to do it it just shows like how resilient some of these places are Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, we've regardless of actually visiting a physical location my wife and i have been using this uh, app called last bottle and it's basically extremely discounted nice wines and they're only available and you have to be the first one where they only have like 10 to 15 bottles available of it and it could be a 150 dollars cabernet that is selling for 30 mm-hmm. and every once in a while we'll look at it we'll pick one up and then we'll add it to our our reserve and then find a special occasion to use it but it's been it's been the summer of wine last year we deemed 2019 20 wine teen <laughs> and oh, we we only made it through may basically until we got to denver because denver had too many beer options yeah yeah that is true it uh it makes it harder when these regions are known for so many things you know yeah it does um, it's actually in um past robles california you know it's it's now known for its wine across the board it's no longer an up-and-coming region it's a it's a solid stop on a wine tour and what a lot of people don't realize is Paso is making a lot of great spirits as well. Um, they're making a lot of great brandies. They're making some good whiskey. And so really? it's, it's like, no matter where you go, they have multiple options, a little bit, a little bit for everyone. I didn't even know that was an option to make brandy and whiskey out of grapes. Yeah. Uh, well, the whiskey is coming from, it's also a big grain region. So they have like a lot of heritage grains there and the um, brandies coming from a lot of them were winemakers and you know they were doing these second presses um with the grapes and they're making almost kind of italian style brandies um and they're very good i you know i can't think of a bad one that i had there i'm trying to think and i think i loved every single one that was brought forward when i was over there touring some of the (laughs) distilleries (laughs) yeah yeah so it's it's fun to have these wine regions that are diverse and not just so focused on wine as well. Um, and it also shows the diversity of America itself. You know, yeah. there are like Colorado's got its beer. You can't you can't ignore Colorado beer, especially around Denver. And yep. um, with California wine, California also has great beer and now great spirits. So it's everywhere that you go. There's there's something for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. It is truly great. I mean, you mentioned the diversity. It's kind of funny. Like we, the United States is able to compare itself to 
several different regions of the world where, you know, France primarily has one growing style region. It has many different wine regions itself, but the climate is fairly consistent across the entire country. Same thing with Germany, same thing with Italy. If you, in Italy, you do have a little bit more of the mountains to get a second or third region out of it. But Pennsylvania has probably three or four of those regions. California has three or four of those regions. And then if you combine it with the United, all of the rest of the United States, you list that there are 250 different wine growing regions. Yeah, you know, not all those wine regions are worth a visit just yet. There are a lot of them. Yeah. And, but, you know, just as people get more and more into wine and this culture of, um, it's really just like, I hate to use that term craft culture, but it really is like people are really getting, digging deep into it and they're, they're learning new techniques to make the best wine possible. And it's only going to get better really. Yeah. Uh, just a quick side tangent. Are you a fan of the make DIY wine kits? So I've done a couple of them um, for stories that, you know, they always turn out fine. It's, it's, yeah. I love anything with the backstory. And even if it's not the best tasting wine in the world, they, uh, they're drinkable and they, they're good with food and friends if you just want something casual. All right. What is this exactly? What is a DIY wine kit? Do it yourself, wine at home. It's like it's like brewing beer at home, but wine. Hmm. Yeah. It's fun because they send you, you know, the the big carboy and they have like the juice and everything for you. And yeah, it's a lot of cleaning, a lot of sanitizing, but yeah. yeah. Do uh, some have of you the experimented kits... with them? I have not. We've thought about it. We've done, we've brewed our own beer at home. And that was, that was a fun experience. We waited too long to actually bottle. So it got kind of heavy and some of it started to settle out. So it wasn't as good as we think it could have been. But I, I wonder with some of these DIY wine kits, are there, do they come with basically wood chips if you want to oak it? Yeah, they, they will... It depends on which wine you get, but they will come with wood chips for some of them. Okay. Um, which is funny to to add that factor in because you know it's not completely necessary to oak everything. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm a big believer in the less oak impact, the better. Which is I know a personal preference. Um, yeah. But a lot of places across the country have been trending that way as well. Which yeah. my I wife and I love. definitely prefer the unoaked Chardonnay. The yeah fermented and stored in a steel barrel i think the oak kind of takes away from the at least the bigger chardonnay's main flavors but the one question i want to ask you before we move into coffee is what is your favorite wine region in the united states and then to tag on to that what is your favorite varietal okay i I'm going to be such a homer here, but I grew up in a small town called Lompoc, California, um, just north of Santa Barbara, and it's the Santa Hill, Santa Rita Hills region. And, you know, they are making actually some of the best wine I've ever had. And I know it's because I grew up drinking it. And it's because it was always on the table for me, but I haven't been back to California, um, to Lompoc to visit or anything for, I don't know, like eight to 10 years or something. And 
I still, whenever I see a bottle, I pick it up. If it's from San Rita Hills, yeah. it's got to be the best wine. And it's a fine place to visit as well. Lompoc, not so much. They have a little wine, they call it the wine ghetto, where they have a bunch of um, winery tasting rooms set up so that you don't have to go out to all the vineyards. But oh, it's, that's nice. it's got some of the best wine, I think. And in terms of grape, um, I would have to say Pinot Noir is the one that I always go to first. Um, But it's also really easy to mess up. So I don't always get it when I'm going to a wine region I'm not sure about. I really like to talk to the winemakers and talk to the people who know areas the best before I dive too deep into a, a grape. I always find the more you can lean on the locals and the winemakers, the better experience is going to be rather than trying to force your own tastes onto a region. Yes. Um, but I do think I lean towards, towards Pinot Noir, but also some Italian red varieties as, as well. Um, okay. I like those tart wines. It's, yeah. It's basically anywhere, anywhere along that I'll fall into. Okay. I, one of the regions I want to visit because it is my favorite and it produces my favorite wine is the Mendoza region. I love 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 Malbec Mm -hmm. and there are very few foods that I will not drink it with and it it, I mean there I won't have it with like a white fish but (laughs) yeah (laughs) but I will have it with like salmon with pizza with burgers it just pairs so easily with a lot of different things yeah I I mean I love those South America wines too Um, both Chile and Argentina they're so fun I worked in a wine shop called Grape Collective up in, in when I was in New York. Um, and, you know, they were always the secret finds. We had a lot of Italian wines. That was kind of the focus. But they they had a lot of South American wines that whenever people were looking for a good go-to bottle that wasn't going to break the bank, you know, it was always an easy suggestion to just pull up something yeah. from Chile or Argentina. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I know I said we were going to get into coffee now, but mm-hmm. I did want to ask uh, one more thing. And as, uh, yeah, I already forgot what I was going to ask. I knew I wanted to ask it. Bob, do you have any questions before? <clears throat> well, I try yeah. to think of it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I do. I, I like to, I want to bring notice or attention to some of the areas that you would recommend, but maybe they're secondary or a little bit off the beaten path. Do you have anywhere that outside of California, outside of the Finger Lakes that people can, that are easily accessible, that, that they may not know produce really good wine? I think there's two that really come to mind um, when people bring up different wineries that and wine regions that they should go to that are both affordable and have good tasting wine. Um, the first one that I keep on going back to is Idaho, just because it surprised me so much how good the wine is there. Uh, they have a urban winery scene as well in nearby Garden City, right next to Boise, and they're making some incredible wine there. And you could just go place to place and hop different areas, and it's a lot of fun if you want that urban wine tasting experience. And then if you want to go out to the vineyards, you know, it's just a short drive over to Sunny Slope, and you can pick up have that full like vineyard experience um, at places like Sawtooth and uh, Fujishin. And there's a lot of good wineries in Idaho. Um, 
that you wouldn't expect, a lot for what you'd expect. And then the other one I would say is uh, Virginia right around Charlottesville. There's not a lot of people, well, there's a lot of people who know that wine is grown in Virginia. Um, I wrote down what it was. It's the sixth largest grape growing region in the US. So it's up there with a lot of wine and it's just increased exponentially since 2010. And it's a lot of new inspiration, a lot of people experimenting, a lot of people doing new things because the land is affordable. And that means the wines are a little bit more affordable there too. And it's somewhere that doesn't top a lot of people's wine list if you're not from the immediate region, but it's definitely worth a visit. Okay. Interesting. One of Amanda's friends who she visited quite a bit when she lived in Arlington, they would go down maybe once or twice a year and do wine tours through the Virginia area. And my wife was just so surprised by how good some of the wines were. And she has actually gotten to the point where one of her favorite bottles is now from the Virginia area. Mm. Um, and Aaron, if you were listening to this, you've made a big impact on the decision to do this episode. So Aaron is Amanda's best friend uh, who has now since moved to California and has even more access to wonderful wines. So the question I wanted to ask is, this has been a great conversation for people that want to domestically travel, but there's been a big trend recently to do a lot of DIY stuff at home. And I was wondering if there have been basically webinars or Zoom wine tastings that you've noticed or seen to pick up where you basically get like one to maybe three different bottles of wine and you get on a call with 10 or 10 or 12 different couples and you have this blind <laughs> wine tasting. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that was something that I think was trending towards happening that uh, the coronavirus pandemic really accelerated as it did with so many things with online. Um, it really just pushed people to, to learn how to do these things. Um, one of the people that I spoke with in Napa um, from Inman Family Wines, um, Inman Family Vineyards, they, uh, they have really taken the online wine tasting and just really run with it. And, you know, it's like Napa is famous for bringing lots of people in, but also a lot of corporate business um, as good team bonding. And um, over at Inman, they were, they'd switched it to virtual tastings with these corporations that it's super interesting how they're doing it with one-on-one -on -one tastings with the winemakers themselves. They'll send three or four bottles to everyone. And then, you know, they'll talk to the whole, it's a whole bonding experience and nothing could beat being there in person, but it's, it's nice to have that option. And I think that that's something that's going to continue very much. So, um, you know, once, once the vaccine comes out and even when people are allowed to travel again, this whole experience of tasting a place first and then getting to go there yeah. is something that'll stay. And I think it's, I think it's for the better too, because you get to know what you're getting into and the more, you know, the better it is. So, yeah, definitely agree. I, I just want to sort of add on to that, or I have a follow-up question. Is there a specific website or online database that you can go to, to select different wines from around the country or aid in additional research or, <clears throat> you know, how people pick wines in Idaho that, you know, if they live in New Jersey, for example. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, it's not, there's not a lot of great resources for that. 
um, trying to think of anything and nothing comes off the bat. We found it in Elliot. Let's get yes. to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically a, a United States database of wine. That's what we need. Right. Yeah. yeah. We need it's, I mean, a lot of these smaller regions, it's also hard to get a hold of their bottles because they don't make too many of them. So a lot of it is consumed in the immediate area. Um, but it, you know, that's, it's part of the fun to, it sounds lame, I know, but to kind of travel through these bottles themselves and to get as many different regions as you can, you know, going to your local wine shop and asking them, what are you excited about? Where, what are some domestic wines that you got? Um, Cause a lot of the times, you know, the people, the wine buyers will bring in wines that a lot of people haven't heard of and yeah. they'll push them for a lower upcharge than some of the more famous regions but it's fun to you know grab a bottle from idaho grab a bottle from virginia and then grab a bottle from california compare them and do side-by-side tastings and it's kind of the next best thing to actually get in travel to all these places one thing i am very grateful for for living in pennsylvania is pennsylvania is the largest wine buyer in the country i think maybe even the world um, because it's all run by the state. So each individual state store, we have two different kinds, the standard, and then there's a premium. And all of them have basically a wine specialist. And we've gotten to know the one that in our local uh, area, and he has been able to offer and provide insight onto a lot of different wines that are either coming in or that they already have, or we can request stuff. And it's been really great to establish that relationship and learn about wine through him. Yeah, I don't think as I don't think it's super well known how much these people at wine stores know. You know, they they really know their stuff. They taste through their bottles that they get. I mean, we're talking about good wine stores, of course. That's different than if you're going to like a supermarket where where you can do that in the states where you can buy them in the supermarket, yeah. but you know, these little wine shops, they really know what they're talking about. They really know the places. A lot of them know the producers. They get a lot of information thrown at them. And I think that, that people in wine stores are, are a little bit underrated when it comes to knowledge that they can pass on. All right, Bob, you ready to get into coffee? I'm ready to get into coffee. Yeah. You're not a big coffee drinker though. Did that change after Peru? Uh, no, <laughs> you know, I, 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 <laughs> I'm not like a coffee enthusiast. I but I enjoy it. I but think I I'm on the same same line as you. Like I I love coffee if it's in front of me. Right. I'm definitely gonna drink it. <laughs> but it's uh, you know, if someone hands me two different ones, I don't I don't know if I can necessarily tell the difference of where they're from. And, See, I yeah. can, I can tell I can tell. Um, and but it's more of a social thing for me. I don't wake up and if I'm home alone, I don't make myself a cup of coffee in the morning i don't i don't need one to start my day i am the i'd say i'm on the far opposite spectrum i absolutely love coffee if i had the choice between coffee and wine it probably would be coffee just by the sheer amount of volume i think i think wine ultimately ends up bringing me more joy because it's definitely more of a social thing for me um, I know coffee doesn't have as much complexity as wine it doesn't change year to year like wine does but I just love being able to sip a cup of coffee throughout the day. And I will drink coffee from the moment I wake up to an hour before bedtime. What? You, you what to you? An hour before bedtime? Yeah. not. And now I should note, let me put a footnote on that, that I don't drink like 128 ounces of it a day. 
I drink coffee very slowly because I enjoy it. I don't use it for the effect it produces. You know, this is something that I've, I mean, I would love to be so gung-ho about coffee and I've tried, I've tried a lot. I, I don't have a, a great caffeine tolerance. <laughs> it doesn't uh, take much for me. Uh, but a lot of these coffee, like we're so far into coffee culture in the United States that it's really breaking down into like regional roasters and different mm-hmm. styles and everything. And it's, it's exciting to be able to taste all these things. It is. And I, I know coffee has a very specific region to grow in. And you cannot grow it outside that region. It's basically between the tropic lines. So there's only 46 degrees of latitude that coffee can grow in reliably. And the United States does not have any of it except for maybe the Keys. And I don't think it's grown there. Hawaii. <laughs> Kona. Kona. Hawaii, Hawaii does have it. Yeah. Um, but everything else in the United States is does not have the potential to grow good coffee. So I think some of my favorite regions that I would love to travel to and actually see the coffee growing and be able to see the process are like Ethiopia, Indonesia, uh, Peru, Colombia, and mm, that's maybe Papua New Guinea. I think those are the Cuba. five. Cuba Minus Cuba. Coffee too. Yeah. But those are the five largest regions. I think Venezuela is also one of the top 10, but you can really tell a difference between a Tanzanian pea berry and a Peruvian dark roast. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that difference. The And for anyone listening that loves coffee, it is, and you get it from Starbucks. Starbucks is almost always a little burnt, which kind of takes away from the flavor. And if you're not familiar with the effects of roasting on coffee, the darker the roast, the less caffeine there is. The lighter the roast, the more caffeine because it doesn't burn off. And when you get a dark roast, the dark roast is you're getting more of the bitterness and the roast flavor. When it's lighter roast, you're getting more of the natural coffee flavor. So I have always been and will always be a light roast person. And I will always go for, almost always go for a black coffee over like a latte. I'm curious how you, when you go by region, um, do you have specific regions that you prefer for coffee growing regions? I do. I do. I I definitely prefer, um, for the most part, Western coffee. Uh, When you get into African coffee, which is more of a, there are two primary beans, right? The Robusta and the Mm -hmm. Arabica. And the Robusta is the most popular. I think it's 75% to 25% of the beans produced in the world. And the Eastern African coffees tend to be much oilier. I think that's a word, oilier, more oily. Yeah, I'll take <laughs> But I and that I can taste, and it tends to produce more of a bitter aftertaste when you're drinking it black. I think those coffees tend to be better used as espressos when there's more oil in them to make it velvetier, and then when you add like a a steamed milk or some foam to it, then you really start to tone down some of the flavors and get a little bit less of that jitteriness because they tend to have a little bit more caffeine density. Mm -hmm. Um, The coffees from South America I've noticed are a little bit 
I would say drier in the sense of wine. They're not as, they're drier with a little bit more coffee or chocolate flavor, mm -hmm. which I love. It's these, a lot of these places are some of the places that are going to be hit the hardest by the impacts of climate change, you know, the, the hotter temperatures, drier, and also surprising rains that come and wipe out crops. And it's hard to think about coffee with, for me, without thinking about how are these regions going to be sustained. Um, I've spoken with people for, for both coffee and for chocolate, which is having, for the cacao regions, they're having similar issues, um, both industries, because they're grown in similar areas and uh, climates. And, you know, those, those regions are shifting and it's gonna, it's gonna push people into places that, to rainforest that needs to be there. It's gonna lead to deforestation. It's gonna lead to a lot of loss of jobs and, and people who, who stake their whole livelihoods on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with coffee, you really have a chance to support the people who, who need it most and to support, you know, sustainable, sustainable growing, sustainable roasting, importing, both on the environment side and on the people side. Um, I think that's, that's not talked about enough is the sustainability of, of the workers who are making it happen because a lot of the times they're not paid the best wages and not the best living conditions, but yeah. there are, there's very responsible sourcing out there if you just dig into it and and talk to people you know yeah i think bob you were the one that sent me an article about the economics of coffee and the breakdown of pricing between from the grower to the distributor to the importer to the roaster and then what the end what the final price is once it reaches your cup if you buy it off of a shelf at a supermarket versus buying it off buying a latte or an americano at a coffee shop and it's really interesting to see how many people are truly involved in that supply chain. Um, one of the things that I learned about when I w took a trip to Costa Rica, which is also a great growing region, um, are my professor that kind of led this trip. He has never really had a lot of coffee in the United States, at least. But when he travels to the actual growing locations, he will drink coffee. And I learned something that I thought was kind of, I, I thought it was um, not fake, but I thought it was like a myth about coffee. And that is when you have mass produced ground coffee, there is the potential to have an acceptable level of cockroaches ground up in it. And it is completely true. And some people have an allergy to cockroaches, which gives them sores in their mouth. So that is the main reason he didn't drink coffee. So yet another reason to purchase some of the coffee grounds directly from the producer and get them as whole beans. That is so interesting. I'd never heard of that. Um, I mean, I believe it completely. That makes perfect sense. You see yeah. it in, in winemaking as well. You know how many bees get stuck in that, right. in the grapes as they're fermenting. There's a lot of animals and or bugs that we've been eating and drinking that might surprise people. <laughs> Yeah. So if you're vegan or vegetarian, I don't know if that makes a difference if you're allowed to eat insects. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Hopefully that won't change your mind. Yeah. But there are so many there are so many coffee subscriptions out there. My wife and I have had a coffee subscription for probably two, two and a half years now that we got for Christmas and then we kept going. And they're basically, they're a little bit more costly than getting 
your Maxwell House or Folgers, but you're getting it almost directly from the source with maybe half the amount of people cut out of it. You're buying directly from the roaster who either bought directly from the producer or there may be one or two more people involved in that. And it's really nice to have that direct interaction. I'm wondering what, what is the, the subscription that you have? We use Mistobox. And do they do it uh, region specific, like different shipments or different regions so that you get to you, compare? Or? You can. You can basically se separate what you want your subscription to be based on type of roast. If you want to have a lighter roast versus a darker roast versus an espresso bean, you can make your preference on where in the world you want it from. Uh, if you want Eastern Africa, if you want uh, Southeast Asia or the Oceania area, or if you want the Caribbean or South American or Latin American. And when we first started it, we were very much just like, all right, let's just get light roasts. That's the only thing we really like. But then as we've progressed in our subscription, we've kind of updated it to be light, medium, dark, and espresso roasts. And we just recently bought uh, an espresso machine with the lockdown because we have always loved going to coffee shops and drinking a nice steamed cup of either a cappuccino or a latte and having a chat. But now we don't really do that anymore because in the to-go cups, you don't really get that nice little latte art. So <laughs> we've been doing it ourselves in the morning and it's been really nice. I, I love that. And it's, it's similar to how we were talking about with wine, um, with, tasting different regions to learn about it before daydreaming about how to get there and everything. Um, one of the coffee clubs that, that kind of introduced me to learning more about it and reading up about it um, is Atlas Coffee Club. And they send a lot of information with their coffees, which helps a lot. Um, That's awesome. To really get to know a region and it's all gorgeous packaging and it's yeah. very well put together. And But the amount of information that they give with the coffee, I think is so important to learn. It's, I think it's always important to learn about what you're drinking and what you're eating. You know, it's mm -hmm. not, it's not just coffee. It's never just a food or a wine or a beer. It's, you know, there's a story behind it. And I think that's so important to learn about. And those coffee clubs really help with, with learning. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's kind of nice. And we, as a society, I think have kind of shifted away from knowing where our food comes from. All right, it was, there was a study done maybe 10, 15 years ago where uh, researchers asked children who were maybe in third grade where cereal comes from, and they said the grocery store. And yeah. that, that was the extent of their knowledge. And knowing where your food comes from and who makes it gives you a much more intimate connection to it and a better appreciation of what it took to bring it to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it can be hard to do it. It takes a lot of, it's takes a lot of time to learn about everything that you're eating and drinking. And, um, you know, that's a luxury and privilege to be able to have that information and have the time to actually soak it in. But I do think it's very important to just do it when you can and start, start doing it early. And, uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of disappointing to hear when people don't quite know what they're eating and drinking and where it's from. Yeah, but, you know, that's... it is. It is. I think that's starting to change, though. I think there's yeah. definitely a lot more awareness, especially after documentaries like Food Inc. 
Michael Pollan's been a huge proponent of knowing where your food comes from and knowing what is safe and good to eat compared to what you should probably avoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Nick, do you see a trend in that at all? Like, you know, being writing about food and, and wine and, and beverages and, and spirits, do you see or do you have any insight on, on trends for that industry in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree that it's increasing. Transparency is going up a lot. Um, it's a little bit um, hard to judge on a broader spectrum because I do feel like we all get into these bubbles, you know, where in, in my bubble, I know a lot of food writers, a lot of drinks writers, and that's kind of my audience. And of course, these people know where their food and drinks are coming from and everything and their backstories. And so I, I'm wary to say that it's an overall trend, but I, from what I've seen, it it is increasing transparency and, you know, all these documentaries are really shining a light on that. But I, I do think everyone should be aware of the bubble that they're in and know that yes. it doesn't translate <laughs> yeah. all the time. Right. Yeah, I think it kind of uh, runs parallel with health, which I also think is, is trending upward. Mm-hmm. Not, I, only, I, not only physical health, but also mental health. Right. Yes, definitely. And, you know, they, I'm hoping that this trend is dying, but the whole idea of, you know, like healthy alcoholic drinks and healthy cocktails and stuff like that, it just needs to go away. It's like Um, the idea of a healthy French fry. What's an example of of a fake healthy drink? What what it's trying to be passed? Michelob Ultra. It's the fitness (laughs) drink. Right. Okay. Okay. Or like the White Claws. Are they being passed off exactly? (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I think I see it most in cocktails. Um, they'll add, you know, like whatever the latest trending health ingredient is. They'll like throw turmeric into a cocktail and call it uh, health boosting. <laughs> kombucha yeah. vodka club. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> Still a drink. They have time and a place, you know, everything in moderation, but just mm-hmm. got to be transparent and honest about it. Are yeah. you, are you, do you have any information on the industry as it's going to merge with marijuana and cannabis? Do you see any cannabis wines and cannabis beers and coming to light? I think that's one of the most exciting things um, and a big reason why I'm very happy to be in Colorado now uh, with how much is experimenting. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, Syria Beverages. It's was founded by the guy who started Blue Moon and now he makes a, um, a weed wine or a weed beer and an IPA. And it's, you know, they have a lot of similar characteristics with the terpenes, the hops and, and cannabis. And I've tried a couple cannabis wines and a lot of bad ones, um, that taste wise, um, rebel coast out of California. I believe they're based in, in San Diego. They're doing a, a weed wine. That's really fun. Um, it's sparkling. They have sparkling options, which makes it Whoa. a little bit more palatable because, um, yeah. you know, they don't taste like what you think of as wine and they definitely don't taste like cannabis. They, a lot of times will taste like, like grape juice that will, will get you high, but um, <laughs> the, it's an exciting area because there's so much room for experimentation. And as we saw um, in the election, a lot of places are moving the needle forward on reasonable cannabis laws and they're taking away that prohibition of cannabis which slowly but surely chipping away at it uh, which is encouraging to see i think that a regulated industry 
is safer and it's more responsible so long as credit's given where credit's due. Yeah. Yeah. New Jersey just legalized in the past election. And I think Arizona just legalized as mm -hmm. well. There and are then... three states that legalized recreationally and two that legalized for medicinal use. Okay. And then Oregon actually decriminalized the possession of basically all hard drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they legalized uh, magic mushrooms and then uh, decriminalized um, cocaine, methamphetamine, and... Uh, uh, I think heroin. Heroin. Mm -hmm. Yep. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, from a, a tourism perspective, it's also, you see what happened with, with cannabis and you just got to wonder, you know, what's going to happen in Oregon with the um, mushrooms. And yeah. it, it brings a certain type of, of traveler, obviously, but it also opens the door for people who are curious to try something in a safe space and mm -hmm. to have something that they know the dosage, they have someone that they can talk to. Um, I know before I lived in a state that was legal, it was always something, um, cannabis was always something that you know, we, we try out everywhere that we went that was legal and it was a fun part of, we just set aside a day or two and make it just like the drinks, you know? Yep. So with the cannabis infused beer, I'm curious, especially, I think it is a great pairing with an IPA because I think Simcoe hops are the ones that really smell skunky and smell like weed and the integration of the two would just kind of pair well together. It would almost taste and smell like there was no difference. Yeah, I think it's a lot more successful with cannabis beer than with cannabis wine. Yeah. Um, just because of the similarities and it's easier to layer those flavors in. It is important to note though that all uh all beer or wine with cannabis in it is also non-alcoholic. Um there are no states that allow the mixing of the two in one product. Okay. That was um, going to be my next question because I'm not sure how that really blends well together in terms of uh, effects. Yeah, that that's one way for someone to go downhill very fast if that's not what they're expecting. So yeah. it is taste-wise, they're putting it in a format that's familiar to people, you know, okay. um, putting in a beer, putting in a wine that they can sip on, say if someone is not, consuming alcohol but they are able to consume cannabis they it's something they could socially sip on and i think it's it's an interesting frontier for where where it can go the options that are is. kind of limitless once once people find out dosage and yeah right, make sure they I knew, it right. sodas are already available in in most states where it's been legal mm -hmm. and oh. i don't know if you guys have, have tried any of them, but they're they're tasty they they're like no. they're almost too good but yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. 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 Um I don't know. I don't remember seeing people drinking them in Denver last year. So the Denver is interesting place with its cannabis culture. It's got, you know, there's a lot of since it's been it was one of the first two states that legalized, the the industry's really developed and matured here. And there's little I don't want to say something for everyone because cannabis isn't for everyone, but you know, you can find every type of cannabis product available and there's a lot of innovation happening. Um, you're seeing a lot of that in California as well. Just California has a very strong cannabis culture, which, mm -hmm. you know, with the Emerald Triangle and what is the Emerald it's nice Triangle? It's um, Up by in Northern California, it's kind of the, the place that's most known for 
growing cannabis um, before it was legal. And there's still a lot of, a lot of illegal grows there too. Um, I have some family friends up there who converted from an illegal to a legal farm and went through all the hoops and everything. And it's still growing some of the best cannabis in the world, in my opinion. Um, really interesting. They're trying to push for an Appalachian system up in Northern California and the Emerald Triangle area that would be similar to wine. And they're saying, you know, this outdoor cannabis that we're growing is just as distinct of a product as a wine is. And we should be able to have people over here to see our eight foot tall cannabis plants and walk through these forests and try our products on site as they do with wine. Interesting. That's a really cool idea. I had never really thought of that as an option before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. You know, the, every state that's legal is still struggling with where to allow people to consume um, no public spaces. And it'll be interesting to see how that changes. It'll, it'll definitely up the tourism factor. If so. Yeah, I think so. Do you think it would become more like coffee shops in, or are they, they're cafes in Amsterdam? The coffee shops are the ones with cannabis in Amsterdam. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a very specific culture in Amsterdam that they have that's hundreds of years in um, and has its own loopholes and sets of laws that are interesting to try and navigate. <laughs> um, but I think that within America, it's going to have kind of its own path. It's kind of going to chart its own way. And I think this is one place when we were talking about wine, when we said places compare themselves to Europe, I think that this is one area where, you know, as countries open up to cannabis, they'll be looking to the U.S. of how they're handling it. Okay. Is my hope, at least. I mean, I, I think that the cannabis scene in Denver is incredible. There's so much information and knowledge here and everyone's so helpful about it. And in California with the Appalachians, it's amazing as well. Um, so I'm excited to see what's come for that. Interesting. I am too. <clears throat> yeah, me too. All right, Bob, you ready? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So Nick, as we come to a close here, we have uh, our rapid fire round, which we did not prepare you for. And we're going to give you uh, 12 questions, which if you can answer as quickly as you can, some of them are goofy, some of them are related to travel, but it's always fun to do this to our guests. So <laughs> to Elliot, I, I guess you'll just, it's our next victim. Right, exactly. So I'm going to get started. Uh, Nick, what is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word travel? Ah, uh, fun. It's just lifestyle fun. What home comfort do you miss the most while traveling? My dogs. Always my dogs. If you could swim in any liquid, what would it be? Oh, this one threw me off. All right. <laughs> you know, I would love to try swimming in wine. It would be. I think that's appropriate based on the conversation we had. It's on my mind. <laughs> yeah, I've thought about that. Would, would it be like a sparkling? I was thinking like a heavy red, almost like a spa. So not too much Ooh. swimming, kind of just relaxing. A nice oaky okay. red. Yeah. Yes. In a barrel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pick two animals that you would like to see fight. Oh, two animals. Um, let's see. I don't know about this one. This one threw me off. Um, you know, I'd love to see a good, like, 
tropical praying mantis big spider fight i think that would be an interesting one yeah i like it Um, i I think it's low stakes enough that i could actually enjoy it yes (laughs) now this next one we've had for every single podcast we've done recently but it's never specific it's never been more applicable would you rather drink coffee or wine for the rest of your life you had to pick one i'm I'm gonna go with wine and i've I've posed this question to myself many times over the years to wonder like, where am I at? And it's always been wine. You know, I just find it super interesting and complex and yeah. always something new to learn. Yeah. I'd pick wine. You'd pick wine too? Oh yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Say hello in your favorite language. Hola. If you can travel with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would it be? Now you only have to think about 10 billion people. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get some brownie points for this. Um, my fiance is the best person to travel with. That's why you chose her. Yeah. That's yeah, why she, she chose you. I'm not sure how it worked. Uh, yeah, I think it was probably she chose me. I got lucky on that one. Yeah. Elliot? I, I lost my spot. <laughs> number Number eight. What is one item remaining on your bucket list? Item or, or place or thing to do? Thing to do place to see um new zealand is really up there i was supposed to go this year in march and you know that would have been a dream trip to go coast to coast uh north to south tasting all the wines there was oh. supposed to be my last two weeks of march and now oh, that i didn't man. get to do it it's so far up on my bucket list of things yeah. that i need to get to so <laughs> hopefully that sounds soon. awesome yeah um who is your biggest celebrity crush um, Anthony Bourdain was the biggest one for me, I think, and I know that's the most stereotypical answer in the world, but I think he really inspired me of how to travel and how to approach different um, places that you're unfamiliar with. Yeah, it's a good answer. Yeah. If you were stuck in one city for the rest of your life, which city would you choose? I want to say San Diego is probably my favorite place in California for sure. Um, I think it's honestly like a little slice of heaven if we're going yeah. domestic, um, but Paris if we're going international. Ooh, that's good right. one. If you owned a yacht, what would you name it? <laughs> uh, probably go classic, go something like beauty. So it's doesn't stand out too much. It's just right there, you know. Subtle, subtle for a yacht. As subtle as you can be with a yacht. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, we still haven't had a yachty McYacht face. Yeah, we need that one. <laughs> you got to get public votes for that one. Yeah, right. All right, last question. Uh, what are the first nicknames that come to mind when you look at us? Oh, nicknames. Well, it's, it's hard <laughs> when um, your guys' backgrounds kind of influenced me a lot with this <laughs> you know the compass in the background and then i'm not sure where this is is it a cafe what mine yeah uh, this is uh in dubrovnik croatia i believe yeah so that, this is my wife actually walking right here and i oh, took nice her. yeah yeah oh i'm so bad at nicknames i'm sorry guys <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This has always it's, been my weak point. We're, we're still working on this 12th question. I actually switched it up, and uh, we're, we're figuring this last one out, I think. <laughs> yeah. we, used to, we used to torture our guests even more. Beyond the first 11 rapid-fire questions, we used to ask them who their favorite Traveler's Blueprint host was. 
<laughs> just to see how awkward we could yeah, make and the then t- it, it, but it came to me that we shouldn't make our guests feel awkward. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but by the by the end of it, an hour and a half discussion, we're basically friends for life. So, yeah. True. Yeah, these are always the um, my favorite part of listening to these is when you get to catch the the host off guard. It's not so fun being on the other side, of course, but <laughs> I do well, love. Them. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure and very informative talking with you. And I am definitely going to be considering taking that route and maybe adding to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. That, yeah, we really appreciate it. Before you get off, um, why don't you give us some information on your website, where people can reach you, social media, whatever it is you want to, to relay to our listeners. Yeah, um, you can always find what I'm doing um, on social media at nicholashines.com. Um, it's spelled N-I-C-K-O-L-A-U-S-H-I-N-E-S. Uh, you know, I have a strange spelling for my name, but it's helped with SEO purposes and get to keep my full name for all my handles and everything. So Very important. <laughs> I appreciate you guys giving me the time for this. It's a fun talk. Yeah, yeah. thank you. It was awesome meeting you. You as well. That was such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed talking with Nick. And I will probably take Nick's map and expand it and try to get a winery in every state and make it like a camper van style three-month vacation. Like a glamping with wine. Yeah. yeah. I like it. I like that idea a lot. Yeah. So part of my retirement goals, so if I don't get to do this in the near future, part of my retirement goals with my wife is to either buy or rent an RV and explore both North America and, well, no, yeah, I mean, I guess all of North America and then yeah. and then go from there. But wine will absolutely be a priority. My wife is a big wine drinker. So I imagine in addition to making her sit through uh, the line to see Mount Rushmore, we'll also include wineries. And this is a good starting point. And I think we'll definitely be incorporating this into our retirement plans if we don't do it before then. Yeah. And maybe we'll take on last last week's episode and maybe by then well we won't even have to drive we'll just be drinking wine as the van drives itself Dude, like a, a fully autonomous rv so it's essentially an autonomous hotel that yeah. you can <laughs> just drive the country and it'll take you to a winery that's incredible the future yeah. is looking brighter and brighter every day never never have to dd again no no so well thank you for listening to the podcast if you want to contribute in a, in a financial way, you can donate $1 a month, less than a cup of coffee per month to the podcast through our Patreon account. You can do more than that if you like, and we would obviously be very appreciative of that. But if you go to our Patreon page, which you can find the link to in our show notes here, and it's on our website, and and you're considering doing that, I mean, we would be in, in incredibly grateful for that. So in addition to that, if you want to contribute in a non-financial way and you want to simply like or share or comment on our Instagram post or give us a review on iTunes, that's a big one actually, we would appreciate that. It is a struggle being a small indie podcast trying to battle the corporations that are now diving into the podcast world. You know, you have Travel and Leisure and National Geographic and, and Condé Nast. Condé Nast who are creating these travel podcasts with big financial backings and 
you know, they're hard to compete with. We we don't have anywhere close to the financial backing of that, those types of corporations. So your contribution... It's literally just Bob and myself. It's just the two of us, yeah. And, and you know, we both have full-time jobs. We do this for fun because we genuinely enjoy it, and that's really the motivation behind it. So if you want to contribute... Um, please do. And we would be forever thankful and grateful for that. So thank you for being a fan of the podcast. Thank you for listening and tune in next week.